turn our attention to God's holy word and the power of God's spirit. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we are in the final chapter. We may be here for a little while, but we are in the final chapter. And we have been made aware of how uh, difficult it has been for the Apostle Paul to minister to the Corinthian church. There's just been a lot of challenges because of all the struggles with sin and false teaching. Now, the two cultures, the biblical culture and the Greco-Roman culture, uh, had little in common. And in this young church, there were still young hearts that were gullible, that were naive. There were still people who had one foot in the world and one foot out of the world. So just all the real-life struggles that we experience as believers, that we experience when we do church life together. were a lot of, lot of challenges. And not to mention, this particular area, as I've said before, was known for its immorality, had a reputation for its immorality. And yet, I am always amazed at just, I envision this, this little smart guy, the Apostle Paul, comes into this pagan, midst of the pagan people, Different practices, different forms of worship, different values. Armed not with fame and fortune. Armed not with some kind of elixir. But just armed with the gospel of God. And he preaches it and he shares it with passion. And lo and behold, people's hearts are changed. And, and a, a culture that has been bound by pagan beliefs and false beliefs and generations of sin and immorality... They embrace this news that the Apostle Paul shares with them. And the veil is removed. And so now, in a city of wickedness, you have pockets of light. God's light. And it's an amazing example. Though it is filled with challenges, it is an amazing example of the power of God. Of the gospel of God. And, you know, we're, people are hard to budge. We get set in our ways. And it's very, very hard to move us. And yet, the power of the gospel, the power of God moved these people to repentance. And now, they live a different life and worship the one and only true God. And so I'm amazed. And yet, in one sense, I shouldn't be that amazed because Jesus, before He ascended, promised that this is what would happen in the world. Because He says He will give us His power. He literally tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And so we have the Apostle Paul going in power. And I love the Apostle's proclamation in uh, the first verse of Romans 16. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of it? Because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so off he goes in the power of the Spirit with a conviction that this message, not what he has to offer, but this message, divine message that comes from heaven to earth, will save souls and change lives. And that's what's happening in this church. But as powerful as that is, sin still remains. There's still the process of sanctification. You have the proclamation of holiness and justification through salvation. 
But then you have that long process of becoming holy as we have been proclaimed holy. And it happens on an individual level and it happens on a corporate level. So in this church, there is still sin to deal with. There's struggles. Lives have been changed, but some of these believers have not given up their sin completely. Maybe some of them brought it in to the church. They still have a little love for the world. And so in this book, and in particular this chapter, God gives us a bird's eye view of real life struggles. Things that happen in real life churches that are under the power of God, but still that struggle. And so today we're going to turn our attention to the topic of church purity and how important it is and how we want to to view each other, how we want to keep God in view as we do our our life together. We live out our Christian life together. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 and then 8 through 10 because we read the whole chapter last time. The Apostle Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others. And I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will spare, I will not spare them. And then in verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Sin is in the camp. Sin is in the camp of this church. And you know how it is where we, we turn to Christ, and yet, so there's this overwhelming willingness to surrender our lives to Him, and yet there's pockets, there's struggles, there's rebellion, there's loves, there's desires that we have that are very, very hard to give up. Face it, if we're honest, and Scripture tells us to be honest, we, we understand that we love certain sins. We just love them. We do not want to give them up. They are our precious. And when God pokes at them, things can get hairy. But God has to poke at them. God will poke at them. God will use other believers and God will use the church to poke at them because as much as we might love sin and be deceived by sin, Sin is incredibly dangerous. We've talked about this. By its very nature, there is no good in sin. It's poison through and through, whether you just take a little sip of it and get partially sick or guzzle it all down to your death. Repentance, therefore, and holiness, in reality, it's not an option. Our struggle in life is to put away the old and put on the new. And that's our battle, that's our fight as individuals and as a church. And as we do that, God's power is manifested. 
People see the change. And we, so we're a witness and we glorify God. So sin is hard, but God in His grace gives us lots of opportunity to deal with it, to soften our hearts. He gives us opportunity in, in private times, safe times, safe places, just between God and ourselves where we can, we can acknowledge His truth. We can acknowledge our failures and our transgressions and get them right, repent, and receive the forgiveness of God. There's no sin great enough that, will, that, that, can, that is so great that the grace of God is not greater to overcome it and to forgive it. So sin can be awkward, but God is gracious. So I think about this. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a very straightforward, very practical teaching on how do we deal with it among ourselves. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15. So let's look at that. How to deal with this. Practically speaking, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you see, it's a, it's a private thing. It's a quiet thing. You don't blow it all out of proportion. You try to work it out in those terms. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentile, let him be to you as one who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't walk in his ways at all. Just goes his, does his own thing, goes his own way, doesn't acknowledge God or the tax collector as one who is actually seen as a traitor. Because now you're serving the enemy, enemy you're helping them take money from us to put money in your own pocket. So you're a traitor, you're greedy. So there's things going in in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I'm not going to talk about those verses today, but I added them just to show that there is such a thing as church authority. Uh, there is such thing that God has given people and the church uh, authority to be exercised in order to keep the church pure. In order to keep the church a light and a powerful witness in the community. So, <clears throat> on a practical level, since we struggle with it, since it can be uh, different degrees of severity, the easiest way to address it is when it's not a big thing or a big deal. We become aware of it in our own lives. We, in the privacy of our prayer closet or wherever, we deal with it with God. We just commune with God. And if, it's, and if our heart is to be pure, if our heart is to obey the Lord, God works with that. No matter how weak we are, God works with that. If it's too strong for us, it's to our own benefit to bring in a team member. Sometimes it takes more than one. Sometimes we're so weak, we need others' help. We need, we need your prayers. We need your accountability. We need you to impart into us 
timely scriptures to remind us of the truth. And so sometimes to overcome sin, it can be a, a team effort that is required. And that includes accountability and confrontation. But again, if our desire is to please God, God is there with us. And we were reminded in Sunday's school this morning of uh, agape love and how powerful that is and how God doesn't just love us even in our worst condition, but He takes delight in us intrinsically for who we are. He's a loving God. So God will work in us. We know that these kind of things are hard. They don't happen overnight, but God's resources are always at work. Scripture also reminds us that if you've been offended, it's your responsibility, though they may be the sinner, it's your responsibility to go to that person and let them know. Don't sit there and let it fester and become an issue and, and let it become bigger than it needs to. Work this out on a personal level and share these things with each other. Uh, calls for humility on both accounts. And when you bring others in it, Scripture reminds us that other witnesses are involved. If it's a serious charge, there needs to be more than one set of eyes there. It means there needs to be substantial proof, validation, that this indeed was a transgression that needs to be addressed. And there can even be, if there's still unrepentance or hard hearts, the church, the leadership of the church can be um, brought into the situation. And so this is what they're facing. And Paul's giving this church a warning. And he's even saying, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't where I want this to go. What I want is for me to arrive and find that you've all softened your hearts to God and repented. And these sins have been pushed out and purged. But if that's not what I find, you're going to see a side of me that you're not used to seeing. Because that's how serious sin is. So if you ever thought about even the word uh, church discipline in this day and age almost causes you to stiffen up. It's almost like taking up an offering. People just like stiff, stiff up. You talk about church discipline and people stiff up. And yet, God is so gracious to give us so many paths to take, so, many, so much advice and wisdom to understand our own hearts, to understand how it works, sin and godliness, and to get right before our holy God. It can be awkward and sometimes it can be messy, but it's always necessary. And it's necessary. It shouldn't be awkward. We should be desirous for help in this area. We should be desirous for a, a pure church because of how the Bible looks at sin and how dangerous sin is and how delightful holiness and godliness is. That's where the blessings are found when we walk in our obedience to God. You can't expect to touch blazing hot stove and not to suffer consequences. And we live in a cause and effect world and so there are consequences to the things we do. We reap what we sow whether it's good or whether it's bad. But none of us, and this is why it applies to all of us, none of us are immune from sin. It's not like, oh yeah, church discipline. 
That's for those other people, the other group of people that sit in the back, or the people that sit over there, the people. We're all sinaholics. None of us are immune. It's dangerous to all of us. And that's one of the reasons it has to be addressed. Because if it's in here, and we're told in Scripture that we have hearts that are prone to wander, then we don't want that effect upon us. It has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. Why? Because we're so holy? No, because we're so weak. God's holy. But we're so weak. We can't handle it. We have to be careful who we hang out with and how much toleration is involved in these kind of things because we're all sinaholics, if you will. And so we have to just, these things have to be addressed because they can be so destructive. Now we know things. Sometimes things have to be quarantined or some have to be pushed away or you're not allowed in here or out there. We know about that now, right? Because of COVID. We, we know about these things. We know how, how uh, one virus can affect an entire community and nation. The behaviors, the attitudes, the dangers, the fears, it elicits all these things. And this particular virus was taken so serious that we locked down an entire nation. If not the world, to some degree. Transportation was locked down. Supply chains were clogged. I mean, it just totally altered our lives. How could this happen? Because there was this great fear and serious perspective on how dangerous this virus was. It changed people's outlook and attitude. It threatened people's well-being and health. And we still see we still see its effect its effects. I don't think that there will I think that there will be effects of COVID that will be forever with us. Of course now there's it's not a pandemic but an endemic. So um, you you have People still are prone to it. People still wear masks. You, you, have to, you still have to quarantine if you have it. Be considerate of others. Uh, there are lingering effects to it. I had it literally right about this time last year. Is when I had COVID. And I lost my sense of smell. And um, I am just now, I think I'm probably about close to 90% now in returning. But there are still... Strong odors that, like, I don't, can't smell them. Like gasoline and other things. Like, what? I, I put my nose in a gas can last week, and it just didn't smell like gasoline. So there can be lingering effects. But the point is, it is something that we cannot take lightly. We do need to change our course of action. I think about an analogy in the Old Testament that they often use to, as a metaphor for sin. And that is leprosy. Like, like in the Old Testament, it was a disease that you didn't want to spread. There's just some things you don't want to spread. And it was a disease that manifests itself on the surface. Uh, your skin would, would rash and, and fall apart, basically. Decay, almost. But that wasn't the main problem. It was a nervous system. It was an underlying system where the people could not feel pain. And so they abused their own bodies. 
You know, they would, they would rub the flesh off their fingers because they couldn't feel it. Or they would pick up something hot because they couldn't feel the heat and burn themselves and things would get infected and, and it's, it was a gruesome thing. And so lepers were asked to leave the camp. They had to be taken out of the camp. And that's the danger there. It's that inner nervous system. Well, sin, we have on the outside, we have our behaviors and our attitudes as they are. Why? Because of what's on the inside, because of what's underneath those things that are not on the surface. We're driven by our hearts. That's why Proverbs says, guard your heart, because out of it comes the waters of life, the springs of life. And if that's the case, then we need to guard, guard the most important part of us, our heart, our soul. So sin works under here. We see it out here if we allow it to be manifested. And there's this element to it that sometimes we have to do the best we can, whether it's in private or with a team group or within a church, to keep the spread. It's dangerous. It has to be contained. In the Old Testament, people were asked to do life outside the camp for this reason. And there's a sense in which with church discipline, if it's not contained and it becomes some kind of level where it's, it's a big danger, then under church authority, people are asked to do life somewhere else. If you're not going to live, you're not going to live under God's commands, if you have no desire to obey Him, you've decided that you're going to be your own God and live your own way and according to your own rules, then we're going to ask that you go and do life outside of the camp. So Paul will intervene if that's what it takes because there are consequences to sin. And what he means by I will spare none, and we'll look at church authority later, but primarily is I'm, if, if sin is what you want, then where you're going to be asked to leave and then you can have all you want. Now what's so dangerous about that? Sin kills. There's consequences to it. That's the last thing we need is to be told here. It is to be given all the leash, be given all the rope that we want to be to fall deep into sin. That's punishment in and of itself. So, there are things that cannot spread. I'm not always so sure why we're so shocked that the church would actually have rules and standards and that some of them could be broken, that we could get to a level, I could get rebellious and get to a level where somebody would have to, the leaders would have to remove me or ask me to leave. I don't know why we're surprised at that. We see standards in every area of life. Our schools have them. Our workplaces have them. You can't just show up to work drunk every morning and there not be consequences. You'll be, if you're unruly and things, you'll be asked to leave places. That's how life works. And that's how, on a practical plane, the church works. We just have to draw standards. We have to have lines somewhere, boundaries, limits, in order to preserve what's good, in order to keep out what's bad. And what is it? Is it a harshness? Well, sometimes it, it, well, it can be abused, for sure. We can abuse our, our Christian friendships. We can abuse Scripture in a lot of ways. But... When it's done properly, it's God's love. God disciplines those He loves. It's unloving to allow us to just go unhindered in, from one 
bondage of sin to the next. God disciplines those He loves. Hebrews 12.11 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yeah, it does. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it's not just a punishment, it's a training. It's not vengeance, it's a training in godliness. Why? Why is it so important? Because that's where your peace comes. That's where your heart will be at rest. That's where you can enjoy life. You're not going to enjoy it when you're in bondage to sin. So we certainly learn the importance of taking sin seriously as a church. That's what will destroy us primarily. As an individual, in our marriages, in our families, that's what's going to destroy things because that's just what it does. As we think about that, I also want us to consider the absolute importance of humility. Because if humility is not all in this whole mindset of helping one another and disciplining in love, it's, it, it can be blown all out of proportion and used by the enemy. So sin has to be taken conser- uh, seriously. It must be confronted, but it must be confronted in an attitude of humility. I'm not really sure what else to call it. It includes justice, rightness, fairness, but I think under the umbrella of humility. In verse, um, he says in, in this chapter, this is the third time I'm coming to you, and every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Isn't that interesting? Because Paul's already said, I'm going to spare none, but he's not going to come and just throw the heat and just make accusations. He's going to get there, and he's actually going to go by the book. There's a book that we go by when it comes to confronting sin, and that is there needs to be validation to it when it gets to a certain level of seriousness. So the Apostle Paul will spare none, but he will go by the book. It has to be substantiated. Sin, especially sin that's going to call for a public discipline. Where does this idea come from? The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 9.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So as mad as we may get, as upset as we may get at an offense or a sinner, there's a proper way to handle 
the situation that has to be validated, it has to be confirmed. We can't just run in there and take action by ourselves on serious situations. Why? Because there's such a thing as false witnesses. There's such a thing as false testimony. See, our hearts are so wicked that we could actually use God's good rules against a person. Falsely accuse them and then the book is thrown at them and their lives are ruined because of the evil of our own hearts. So what is important here is to understand our own proclivities and also to understand God's great care for the innocent. It is very important to God that the innocent are not punished unjustly. And that's where the humility comes in. We have, to, we have to keep ourselves before God, give people the benefit of the doubt, make sure our emotions aren't in it too deeply, make sure our pain's not talking too loudly, make sure everything is by the book. Jesus is aware that even His own people could make false accusations. Not only is He aware of it, what did He experience? Why did He even go to the cross? False accusations. They accused him of all kinds of things. Blasphemy of one, of, uh, one of them. False witnesses. Not just one. They brought the proper amount of false witnesses. And because of that false testimony. And injustice, unfortunately. Jesus went to the cross. So this is an important matter in God's legal system. It was more important to avoid punishing the innocent. Than convicting the guilty. So what if... A person is guilty and you cannot have substantiated it. Have to go by the book. They may walk. It doesn't mean that we get away with it because God knows. You'll never walk out. You might walk out of a courtroom, but you're not going to walk out of God's courtroom innocent if you're guilty. There's always consequences to sin. If just one person saw it, it's a serious accusation. It can't be proven indisputably, then we just might have to let it go. You know, that shouldn't be um, too new because that's how our legal system works, right? We call it uh, innocent until proven guilty. Not guilty until proven innocent. There's a huge difference. And our lives are, are blessed by that mindset of we are innocent until... Can you imagine, and not every country is like that. Can you imagine being accused of something you didn't do and sit in prison perhaps for years before you are acquitted? Innocent until proven guilty. And there's that proof idea. There needs to be substantiation. You can't just get your feelings hurt and accuse people of certain things. And it does mean that Unfortunately, some guilty people might walk. But again, they don't get away with it under the sight of God. So protecting the innocent is an absolute priority. If the witness is a false witness and he's accused his brother, then what you try to accuse him of, that's what will come upon you that you might purge the evil from the mist. That's the goal, the aim. It's that evil. It has to be dealt with. We're going to do it right. 
We're going to do it with innocence as a priority, but it has to be dealt with. And that's why I think that humility comes in because as damaging as sin is, we have to just be really careful about it. We have to be really humble about it. We need to get other set of eyes in there, more minds in there to work this thing out and to understand our own sinful tendencies. Understand maybe even our own assessments might be off. And so we have the wisdom of others to help us in this. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. And that word for gentleness, by the way, uh, has to do with humility. It's the opposite of harshness. It's not caught you, I'm going to get you. It's a gentle correction. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life. You might be next. You have to guard our own hearts and keep sin at bay. Remember, we're all sinaholics. Some of us keep it under control more than others, which is great. Some of us struggle with it, but it's there. Uh, we don't have to. We don't have to like keep it out in the sense that we don't already have it on our own person. So we need to be aware. Even the accusers need to be aware and to check ourselves. And sin has to be confronted on all levels. Here, it destroys. So Paul is going to deal with it. He's going to do it by the book. He's going to walk the line. So as we think about this, I want to take some time to just mull this over uh, and give some, make some observations and um, some examples as we think about this. This idea of taking sin serious. How has New Covenant Fellowship dealt with these kind of things through the years? What has it looked like in our own church? Well, to my knowledge, there's only been in a case of public church discipline where a sinner was unrepentant. And it's been well over 20 years ago. One case of public church discipline. That was under Pastor Kirk's um, pastorship there. This person was approached because of a public sin and asked to leave because they were not repentant. By God's grace, this person was never restored back to New Covenant Fellowship, but was restored back to the Lord and back to ministry in a different location. This person repented and got their hearts right for God. Remember, the goal is always restoration. Building one another up. So, to my knowledge, there was only one public case of church discipline. And I hope that what that means is that we are humble and not negligent. Since there was only one case. Carl Laney wrote a book called The Guide to Church Discipline. He said, the church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowing, which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanism, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change 
And this illness is due at least in part to a neglected church discipline. We talked about how does a church maintain its relevance in the culture. Well, one of the ways is through purity, taking sin seriously and taking the gospel and the hope of God seriously as well. <clears throat> so I hope that's not us. I don't think it is, but I want to be humble about it. And I, I just see it as God's grace that we have only had to do this one time. It's just purely the grace of God that, that we even had to address it at that level just one time. So why is that the case? <clears throat> if we take sin seriously, we take Scripture seriously, and we want to obey it as leaders and as a church, why has there only been one case? Now, I'm just offering you my thoughts because as I come before Scripture, I, I'm accountable to it. I have to think through these things. First of all, we're, we're a small church. So, that has just probability, by probabilities has something to do with it. It lessens the, the probability. And it affords the opportunity to be a tighter-knit community because we are small and more intimate. Second, I think it's because as a church, by God's grace, we are pretty proactive. On individual level and a church level, we're proactive about caring for one another in this way. I know, many, I know many of you personally, and I know how you care for each other, and I know that if it calls for it, you will confront. Gently and humbly, you will confront a sin. That you'll bring it to each other's attentions. When you, when you deal with it at this level, it never goes to a more serious level. So a lot of the discipline has been avoided, or public discipline has been avoided because of just being a body that has been proactive. Uh, we're accountable to each other at some level. We have care groups, we have Bible studies, we have friendships, we have youth groups, we have Sunday school, we have lots of opportunity to share with one another, opportunity to share our hearts, to share our struggles, to pray for each other, to come alongside of each other. And those things are being proactive they, they are taking sin seriously so that doesn't grow and destroy more than it already does. So we, we want to strive to continue to create that kind of atmosphere among ourselves. You see how important it is. When we talk about friendships or care group or accountability. These things are very, very serious in the sense of what they might curtail. Not just the immediate blessing that you receive, but in what they might curtail. Now we always want to be... Uh, open to doing better. But this is where I hope that we are. And we don't want to mistake the fact that there hasn't been all this public discipline uh, for, the, for the sake that we have not confronted or looked at sin or taken it seriously. Third, through the years, there have been times when people um, have repented of their sin publicly. There have been times where people have stood before us and said, I blew it. And I asked your forgiveness as a church family. Not a lot of times, but there have been some times that that has happened. Years ago, there was a young man and a young girl that were dating and they fell into temptation and this young lady got pregnant. You can't hide that, but so long, right? So they, they were counseled. They were 
confronted and this young man took courage and he came before the body and he apologized for that sin and asked forgiveness and was just immediately restored and that whole situation that could have gone evil and wrong turned into a, a lovely demonstration of God's grace because of his humble attitude and because of the grace of his church that was extended. Fourth, in our culture, if sin reaches a point to where church discipline may be necessary, usually what happens, unfortunately, is that we leave. I'm not going to stay here and deal with it. I'm not going to stay here and be disciplined by you or your pastor. I'm going to go far enough where I can go just go to a different church that doesn't know anything about my sin. So we have this anonymity here, unfortunately, in things where, where sin is never dealt with. It's just carried from one place to the next. But that happens, and that has happened uh, in our church before. So I hope this means, what I hope this means is that, again, we're just a church that has received an abundance of God's grace. And as I have considered the severity of sin, and I've considered the church's role in all this, and I look back in and, and my role as a leader, even before I was a pastor, I look back and I see errors in my leadership. I see errors in it. I see errors in times where I've dealt with sin too harshly. I've seen errors in my time where I didn't deal with sin and I let it go too long and it got out of hand. And I should have just said something earlier. So on all these different levels I have seen errors, of course hindsight. And all those times, by the way, my heart was right. Like I prayed and prayed and prayed for wisdom. And to the best of my human ability, my heart was right. But there were still errors. I didn't have it all. And so we have to be very, very humble. Sometimes I came to the defense of the wrong person. There's just been a lot of things like that. But sin is so messy. It's so complicated. And unfortunately, I don't always do the right thing. And unfortunately, you won't always do the right thing. So we have to be humble about it and able to forgive others who maybe have wronged us. So I am not staying up, standing up here and saying, boy, we just did it all right. We went by the book and never made a mistake. Uh-uh. I, I could almost feel the bolt of lightning go through me if I were to be so deceived as to say that. It's a serious thing, but because we're all in it together, we just, it's, it's a team, it's a rally, it's the love of God and Christ through us. I hope that you will add church purity to your prayer list. And just look at it in this kind of light. It shouldn't be awkward. We need, we need to be the place in the world that actually deals with these things in a loving, kind, forgiving, consequential way. Everybody has sin. They just don't all know what to do with it. And God has given us this wonderful book that tells us how to examine our hearts how to approach each other. You can't get any more specific than that. How to get the plank out of our own eye. These are beautiful words. This is a beautiful teaching. And we would do well to embrace it. But it's messy. It gets messy. So in our closing time with just a, a, a few a scenario, let's just say a church has a youth group. They've got a youth group. One of the teens is going through a terrible time of rebellion. And they are doing everything they shouldn't do. But they're still in the youth group. What do you do with that? 
Well, one, the parents say, well, let's say the youth, the youth leader obviously uh, approaches the parents. The parents say, oh, please don't kick them out of the youth group. If my child needs this now more than ever needs the Christian influence, please don't kick them out of the youth group. And then you have the other parents saying, I bring my kids to church not to learn evil, but to learn good. And he came home smoking cigarettes or who knows what, popping pills or who knows what. So, what do you do with that? It's so messy. It, both things are true. We, we try not to put ourselves in those positions and hopefully it can all be handled at home with the parents and with you know, a, a safe, quiet community. But the evil has to be dealt with. It has to be purged. You can't just let it go because it will badly influence and contaminate others in that sense. So these are the kind of things we're faced with. So here's another scenario. Let's just say this person says, well, I'm just going to make it easy for you because now I'm 16 and I got my own license and I got my own car and so I'm not going to church, mom and dad, and I'm having nothing to do with them and I'm going to go live my own life. And so that made it easy for the church, poor mom and dad, but it made it easy for the church because now we don't have to deal with it. And then a few years later, they come back to the pastor and say, Pastor, I have met somebody and I'd like for you to marry us. And then the pastor talks to this person. Now, this was one of our own, say, hypothetically. It's one of our own. And so, you, you know, you're always rooting for your own people, people that was, for the most part, raised in the church. Family still may even go to that church. Who knows? But what do you do? And the pastor speaks to this person and can obviously see that they're not repentant. They're not really interested in living for God again, but they love a church wedding because the weddings that they attended at this particular church when they were growing up were beautiful. Everybody made a big fuss about it. And that's what they wanted. Well, now what do you do? Then you have this grace. Well, will our grace win them back to the Lord? Or does this preach a message from this particular church that, hey, I want all the youth to know you can just go out and rebel and come back anytime you want and we're just going to do no consequences. We're just going to receive you and give you what you want, repentant or not. You see how messy sin is? I hope your wheels are turning because this is real life stuff. And it can be dealt with when it's small, if we're humble enough, if we cling to God, if we desire these kind of things. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. May, by God's grace, may we hold down this kingdom outpost for His glory. And may God bless the preaching of His word.